Success stories and interviews with game changers and thought leaders who have overcome both in life and in business. Welcome to Vertical Momentum. To another episode of Vertical Momentum. I'm your host, Richard Kaufman. This is going to be a fun episode. This is gonna, We're going to talk about some um, deep stuff. Then we're going to talk about some fun stuff about the dark side of first being a first responder and the lighter side of being a first responder. But guys, if you're if you love a first responder, make sure you share them with this. If you guys leave a comment or leave a review for us, we are actually um, will shout you out on the next episode that we have. So make sure that you leave a review or a comment. Uh, guys, we're going to welcome my friend Patrick, Pat, Mr. Patrick Fa- uh, Faulkner, CEO of Faulkner Ende- Endeavor Group. He's a, re- a, re- a retired. He's a police officer. He's also a veteran, and we're going to have some fun. We're going to be talking about his podcast, his ebook, which I love, by the way. It was one of my favorite ebooks ever. Um, brother, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How about yourself? Oh, man, life is great. I got to wake up and take my daughter to school. I got to get up and do my cardio, and now I get to hang out and talk to you. So uh, it doesn't get any better than this. I don't see how it could. <laughs> So how was your day going? Uh, not uh, not terrible for a uh, rainy day here in Atlanta. Uh, so uh, we're just just chugging along. So okay, now first we're, I want to know because as you know, when when I have anybody on my show, I like to go deep and and you know get to know the person behind the badge. So where did you grow up, and what kind of little boy was were you when you were growing up? Oh gosh! All right, so uh, I guess we'll we'll kick it back to the seventies. Uh, We're going old school, baby. Old. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I hear a little disco music in the background. Uh, so I was I was born in Pensacola. Um, uh, let's see, we lived there till I was about ten, and uh, then we moved to uh, Knoxville for a few years, and then up to Baltimore, uh, where I ultimately. Graduated from high school and then um, fast forward a, a little while, I ended up joining the, the Air Force out of uh, Birmingham, Alabama. So uh, I've been uh, up and down the uh, the East Coast, Southeast uh, dur- during my life. But uh, as a boy, if you were to ask my mom, uh, I was the type of child that uh, could go outside in a solid white uh, shirt and shorts and white shoes with white socks and go play in the backyard and come in just as clean as, as I was when, when I went out there in a spark contrast to my little brother who uh, uh, could get dirty, just walking down the hallway inside the house. Now, why did you guys move around so much? Uh, great question. Uh, my, my father worked for Motorola and uh, as he moved up the ranks from uh, regional salesmen, uh, he, we lived in Pensacola, but he worked out of Mobile, uh, Alabama. So uh, as he climbed the ladder of Motorola, we each move was a step up for him. Okay, so now, you know, like I, when I was growing up, I moved around. Like I had like 13 schools before high school. So after like the seventh school, I'm like, you know what? I just, I'm not going to make any friends because I'm just going to be leaving mm-hmm. anyway. Uh, now you had your brother, obviously, but 
how was your relationships with, you know, kids in school and did you make friends? Well, yes. It wasn't that difficult for me. I, I will tell you the hardest move that I had growing up was uh, going from Knoxville to Baltimore. Um, I, I really had a East Tennessee accent, a pretty thick Tennessee accent. And uh, when I moved to Baltimore, I, I think I was probably the first Southerner that uh, those kids in the uh, Baltimore suburbs had, had ever met or talked to. Uh, so I was uh, a, the butt of a lot of jokes and, um, you know, things that rhyme in the South don't rhyme in the North. So I almost failed ninth grade, I'm sorry, 10th grade English uh, in the poetry section of, of uh, English class uh, because I would, my, my poems would rhyme to me with the East Tennessee accent uh, and dialect. And that teacher that actually came down from Jersey uh, did not agree with uh, my syntax. Yeah, like a lot of times, like I, I, I was pretty much, you know, raised and I grew up in South Carolina is when I became a man. And, you know, you could say anything to everybody as long as you followed it up with bless your heart. Bless your heart. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The meanest thing in the world is softened by bless your sweetheart. That's it. That, you can tell mama, man, that's one ugly baby. Start. <laughs> Get away with it down there. But, you know, uh, now high school, were you an athlete? Were you a student? You know, what what what, what was going on in high school? Um, neither, really. I, 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 I was a swimmer in middle school. Uh, the, the neighborhood we lived in in Knoxville had a, a two neighborhood pools. It was a pretty big neighborhood. And we had a, a, a swim team. And uh, when I, I went to ninth grade there in Knoxville and I, I wasn't good enough of a swimmer to make the, uh, the high school swim team. When we moved to Baltimore, there was no such thing as uh, swim teams there, uh, at least in, in that county. So um, I, I wasn't able to get any better swimming Um so I tried tennis and I was decent at tennis. I made the junior varsity team my uh, my sophomore year. Uh, but then when I turned 16, my father told me that if um, uh, if I wanted a car, that I would have to pay my car insurance and I would have to pay for the gas maintenance and upkeep. Uh, so I had I had to choose either sports uh, and, and catch a ride with somebody or wait for mommy and daddy to take me or go to work and, uh, and earn a paycheck. So, um, I, I quit sports in a competitive level. Now I played like, you know, backyard football or their lacrosse was, was big. Um, so I tried to pick up lacrosse for backyard games, but, um, I ended up getting my first job at um at blockbuster when i was uh when i was 15 in preparation to save money for uh for my car and uh, all the expenses that would come with it now um obviously you graduated high school yes you joined the air force yes and you know 
uh, us military, you know, we can all pick on each other, but nobody else is allowed to pick on any of us. That's right. Um, what was the the mindset in joining, uh, picking the Air Force? And then um, I also, you know, I, I've done now hundreds of these interviews and I love talking about each person's recruiting story because everybody has a different story. Yeah. So your mindset and then what was your recruiting story like and how did your parents handle it? Oh, okay. Uh, three part question. Uh, I, I tend to to get on tangents and take uh, right turns in Albuquerque instead of the left turn, uh, as Bugs Bunny would say. So uh, you may have to rope me back in. Just it's uh, okay. I think I'm. I think I, I'm good at that. I can okay. Do. All right. So um, mindset. So when um, after I graduated high school, my my grandmother passed away, and my uh, my grandfather was then going to live alone in. Uh, in Birmingham. And of course we lived in Baltimore. So um, I took it upon myself to move to Birmingham to go live with my grandfather and help him through uh, this transitional stage of losing his wife of you know decades um, and not being alone in this house so far away from the family. And it took about three months of listening to all of his uh, romantic stories of the Second World War, uh, places he got to go, things he got to see, his experiences. He was uh, in the uh, Army Air Corps and was a ball turret specialist on the B-17 and and stationed in England. So, you know, it didn't take long for me to, to realize that the year and a half that I was in community college and not doing great, I wasn't doing awful, but I wasn't doing great. I just, you know, going into 13th and 14th grade, if you will, just wasn't for me at the time. So um, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with myself, it was, it was sort of pretty easy decision all of a sudden for this light switch to go off and, hey, I'll join the military. And uh, I picked the Air Force. Now, you're going to laugh at this and, and probably ha- half of the audience, but uh, I went to all of the recruiters. I, I sat down with uh, with the Marine Corps first and then uh, walked next door to uh, uh, the, the Air Force. And then next door, there was a huge recruiting station in, in Birmingham. Uh, and then I walked next door to the Army and the Navy guy. Uh, came rushing out and was like, Hey dude, you skipped me. Like he was, I guess he was watching as as I was walking door to door, so to speak uh, in this little shopping center. And uh, I went in and I, I sat down and I listened to him and he said, I saw you go to the air force. You you know, uh, the Navy, we have more planes than the air force does. And (laughs) that sort of turned me off a little bit because I was like, there's no way the Navy has uh, more planes than the Air Force does. Now, I've never fact-checked that in the 20-plus years since that man said that to me, uh, so I don't know if it's true. Um, but my, the, ultimately, the decision, the mindset of joining the Air Force, it came down to this. The uh, the Marine Corps basic training was like uh, 12 weeks or, or something like that. And then the, uh, the Army and the Navy were, were either 8 or 10 weeks, and the Air Force was 6 weeks. And I said, dude, I, I can do anything for six weeks. 
And that's what it boiled down to. The basic training for the Air Force was the shortest. And what job uh, did you uh, take? I was a uh, F-16 avionics technician. Okay, so you must have you scored pretty good on your GT then. Uh, it, I, yeah, I guess um, I, I scored high enough to get into the avionics within within the Air Force, and I don't remember what my ASVAB score was, uh, but I I remember my recruiter was really excited because he said, "Now this score opens up the entire catalog for you," and uh, he sent me home. To, so now to go into your uh, your question about the recruiting process, uh, my recruiter was 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 a pretty cool guy. Uh, once I decided that I was going to do go to the Air Force, before he sent me down to Meps to take the ASFAB, um, he took me back into one of the conference rooms and put this tape in of uh, the first thirty minutes of. Uh, when you arrive at Lackland Air Force Base and what that's going to look like. He said, I don't want to lie to you. I don't want to pull the, sh- uh, the wool over your eyes. I'm not I'm not here to you know rope you in anything. This is what you can expect the moment you walk off the bus. And there was a bunch of yelling and, uh, you know, those those campaign hats, browbeating guys uh, as they're standing at attention for the first time in their life. And um, yeah, it was. I guess a little intense in that uh, it was, you know, yelling and things like that, but I I had seen full metal jacket. So I I knew that there was going to be yelling and stuff. And it really wasn't all that. uh, I I guess it it didn't scare me at all. So um, I felt like he was doing the best he could as a recruiter to prepare me for it. So um, I went to the, to MEPS in uh, Montgomery and took the ASVAB, came back, he got the score, and I, I guess I scored pretty well. And he gave me this catalog of every job in the Air Force. It was a huge color-coded uh, catalog, almost like a Sears and Roebuck. And, and once, one side, if you opened it up, the left side had the job description, uh, and the right side had all of the bases that you could pick, you know, on your dream sheet. Uh, so I, I flipped through every single page and I got to, uh, the F 16 in the, um, in the maintenance section. And I was like, dude, that's a pretty cool plane. I, I played that in flight simulator. Um, uh, so I picked the, the F 16 and then, um, uh, I was looking at the jobs on the F 16 and, and I came to, in the avionics section, uh, attack control systems. And I was like, that sounds cool. And I read that it was, a, it, it uh, encompassed the attack control systems, encompassed the, the fire control radar and uh, this thing called GPS uh, and some, some other integrated avionics systems. And I'm like, that's what I want to do. Attack, con- attack control systems, dogfight switch, missiles, radar. That's what I want to do. And uh, I had a, a, an uncle that was retired Air Force, and he's like, really need to pick a job you can do when you get out because the chances of you being a lifer is not very high. So you need to be smart with your job. And I was like, nope, that's the job I want. So that's how I picked uh, uh, avionics.
Now, after you, you did four years, correct? Yes, just four. Now, did you get deployed anywhere? I did a one 90-day rotation in Jordan. And the uh, two days before we were supposed to pack up and fly home, the attack at Kobar Towers happened um, in, in Saudi Arabia. And we uh, unpacked everything and stayed another couple of weeks um and during that time before that we were allowed off base or out of tent city uh and uh, and out of the the jordanian air force base to go and like do nwr trips um i went to petra uh which was awesome and amazing i'm i'm pretty pretty sad that i can't take my wife there and my son to to show show them petra uh because it was really neat uh, went into Amman and had some fun there. Um, but after the Kobar Towers attack, we weren't we weren't allowed off base anymore. And then the my second uh, deployment was to Bahrain. And once again, we lived in a tent city uh, just outside or on a uh, uh, Bahrainian Air Force base. And that was a pretty unique trip as well. We didn't we were not allowed off. Uh, off the compound at all that entire trip, but they brought in, now this is going to surprise you for, for you non air force folks, but they brought in a, a pizza hut tent, a burger King tent, and we had two beer tents along with the field kitchen. So the struggle was real. It was, we had to sleep in cots, man. Uh, <laughs> uh, it was, it was a huge, we had um, six people to a tent and, um, uh, sleeping on sleeping on those cots was rough. It's yeah. not it's not like my four star uh, uh, dorm room back on on base. I mean, definitely. I mean, you should definitely go to the VA because you, <laughs> you have back back problems. I do. My neck, my neck, and my back still to this day. I suffer. Yes, suffer awful. Suffer. You don't even know the suffering. You know, and you might even get a purple heart because you putting them cots together. You might even cut yourself. Uh, no, so, um, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but one of the cool things, I don't, I don't know if you, uh, ever got to go play in the sandbox, but one of the, one of the cool things, uh, we did on the flight line was, uh, try to trap and collect, uh, both camel spiders and scorpions. And, uh, at the end of the day, when we'd go back to, to tent city off the flight line and, um, uh, uh, had one or two uh, holes punched in our beer ration card for the night, we would, uh, we'd have Thunderdomes. Like, so we would take the scorpion and a camel spider and put them in a cage uh, and, and let them, you know, fight it off almost like uh, uh, cockfights. Yep. I tell my wife about that all the time. I said, yeah. we just do that with the old helmets and just put them in a helmet and watch them fight to the death. Yeah. Yeah. So they- now after four years, you know, you decide to get out. Um, what was your thought process there? You know, cause you had a, 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 you had a good, a good time. You learned a lot, you traveled a lot, but what was your thought process? Cause you know, a lot of guys and girls, when they get out of the military, you know, for me, it was, you know, after 23 years, it was all I knew. And, you know, my whole identity was Sergeant Kaufman. And, you know, a lot of people, when they get out of the military, not only do they lose their career, you know, but, you know, even when we're in the military, you know, we get, we kind of get coddled, 
you know, we know we're going to get paid on the first and the 15th. We're going to get TRICARE, blah, blah, blah. Right. And then like Sergeant Nick says from our group, you know, once you hit the streets, the military does not give a shit about you and your phone stops ringing. And now all of a sudden, all the contacts that you've made, your phone just dies. It's like it's not even working. So what was your thought process and what was your transition like? Um, you know, I was still pretty young. So I, uh, my first day of basic training was my 20th birthday. So, uh, my 24th birthday to myself was, uh, separating out of the air force. Now, uh, I was, uh, going through a divorce at the time. I know that probably surprises you. Um, I had uh, a very young, uh, child. My, my son was, um, between one and two years old at the time. And she was a local, I know that probably surprises you as well, um, from the uh, area around the base. And um, my parents had relocated from Baltimore to Mer- or to, to Atlanta um, with my, my dad's last promotion. And um, they welcomed me back up to now their new home as a transition, almost like a, a halfway house while I was trying to figure out what the next steps were. So it was, it was pretty scary. I, I made the decision early on that I wasn't going to reenlist because I knew I had a friend in personnel that there was a, a short tour Korea tour waiting for me if I reenlisted. And I didn't want to go to Kunsan Air Force Base and spend a year playing uh, Army chemical warfare every every month for a week or plus. Uh, and it was a hardship. So uh, even though we were going through a divorce, I was trying to fix it. Um, she wouldn't have been able to go. My son wouldn't have been able to go. And I wouldn't have been able to see them for a year. So I just decided not to reenlist. And... Um, I was stationed at Moody Air Force Base in South Georgia, as I like to call it, Val Dumpster, Georgia. And my parents were in Atlanta. So my, my dad, who was pretty up, far up in Motorola at this point, said, you know, you should think about moving up here. There's more job opportunities in Metro Atlanta than there is in South Georgia. So that's what I did. Uh, it was scary because I, I had no plan. I didn't know what what I was going to do next. I interviewed for a couple avionics jobs that my dad helped me uh, get my foot in the door, but I was um, too military specific. It was what I kept getting told. Uh, there, there wasn't a need for a attack control radar in the civilian market. And I did not get my FAA uh, maintenance license. And I don't remember what that's called now, but there was a certain license you could get um, through the FAA that would make you more attractive and hireable in the civilian world when you decided to get out. The crew chiefs all got it as part of their training program, but the avionics guys, it just wasn't in in uh, our deck of cards. So um, I couldn't get a job in avionics. So uh, I, I was thinking to myself, what am I qualified to do at 24 years old, no college degree? And in the uh, in the late 90s, 
there wasn't this big push to hire veterans. Um, we weren't in war. Uh, so the, uh, the nation, as far as my experience goes, didn't care that I was a veteran. That carried no weight in an application process. So um, I asked myself, what am I qualified to do? And I came up with three choices. You could um, go be a trashman, a fireman, or a policeman. And trash stinks. Uh, so I really didn't want to do that for a living. Although looking back, they make pretty good money. Um, firemen are, they run into burning buildings on purpose. And that's, uh, that's crazy. So I was left with, um, with law enforcement and I sort of asked myself, where, where else can you, you know, go to work, drive fast, uh, while at work and carry a gun. Cause that was, that was kind of cool at 24. So, um, I picked, picked law enforcement. And now, because you already been through basic training and, and you knew, you know, because like a lot of people don't realize and I realized it from the beginning because I had somebody in my life that was a Korean veteran. He's, you know, and I hate cursing on here, but sometimes it's it's warranted. And he, before I went, he's like, listen, it's all just a mind fuck. That's all it is. He's like, just don't quit and you'll be OK. Mm -hmm. So, you know, now that you went through basic how was it going through, um, you know, the the academy becoming and becoming a police officer? Did that help you from, you know, because everything you went through already? Yeah, it, it helps uh, with military bearing, you know, being able to understand a chain of command, um, still being pretty fit uh, and being able to 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 handle the the physical aspect of of the academy as well as understanding, as you put it, the, the mind games that, um, you know, sometimes they, they, they put you in a no win situation. There's absolutely no way you're, you're going to win the scenario. And they just want to see how well you react and what your process um, thinking process is when you realize you're not getting out and, and, and how, how you handle that under stress. Um, I mean, the, the air force, basic training wasn't difficult. I mean, it was only six weeks long. Yeah. There was a lot of yelling and, you know, push-ups and sit-ups and drill. I mean, yeah, we, we did marching drills. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't difficult. Uh, for me, um, I, I guess I had a, a pretty good understanding of what to expect. Thanks to my uncle who was retired out of the air force, my father, who was, um, uh, the army national guard, uh, and my grandfather who was, you know, out of the army air corps, they all prepped me what to expect. Um, I, I remember the greatest advice my, my uncle gave me, and that was the word of the day. Every day is blend. Don't raise your hand. Don't open your mouth. Only speak when spoken to, and don't let them know your name and you'll be fine. And for six weeks, that's what I did. So fast forward to the police academy. It was all about really the same same thing, learning different things. Now, instead of Air Force history and uh, military history and then job-specific training uh, for airplanes, now I'm le learning uh, this particular department's history, the, the county's history, and then 
law enforcement training. So it was it was all structured about the same. I think it going through basic certainly helped uh, me get through the academy because I was well prepared for it. Now, you know, um, I love my first responders, obviously. I'm, I'm a big first responders advocate. I love my police department. I love my military. So you're kind of like you're, you're a little bit of both. So let's talk a little bit about the dark side. You know, a lot of people like I, I, I heard a stat that the average American male lives to 78. The average American first responder lives to 58. So that's a 20 year difference. Yeah. Um, so talk to us about, you know, why i mean obviously you know you're we're not professionals here we're just you know two brothers just just talking shit um why do you think the big discrepancy that's a that's a that's a big that's a um, that's a quarter of a lifetime you know yeah but why do you think you know that you know first responders veterans we have such a high depression we have a very high divorce rate i mean i think it's like something like 80 percent divorce rate and a very high suicide rate. Why do you think that is in your, per, in your, in your personal opinion? The job itself, um, in, in both, I guess the word industry, but in both career fields are, are, are pretty similar in that first responders are within a paramilitary organization. So they have similar rank structure. They have shift work and, and, uh, put a pin in shift work because we're gonna we're gonna come back to that. Um, but the uh, the high stress of um, immediate responses, adrenaline dumps repeatedly uh, during a eight or nine, 10, 12 hour shift uh, happening over and over and over again and the body having to recover from those uh, adrenaline dumps. And then the uh, uh, the fear factor, the pucker factor, if you will, um, of, uh, of the danger. Um, I was uh, obviously as an F-16 avionics person, I was not a combat veteran. And, and I served in, in a time period where there, there was no uh, active conflict. Um, and I was working on a flight line. So I was literally hundreds of miles away from anything that would could be called action. Uh, but in my law enforcement career, I was on a different front line and uh, I was in the thick of it all the time. I mean, I was not a, still, I'm not a, a big guy. So um, when I graduated high school and then went to the recruiter, I was told I needed to gain five pounds just to get in. So I was like five, five and 110 pounds. And, and the minimum weight requirement was 115. So when I got out of the Air Force, I weighed 130 um, at five, like five, six, five, seven, if I had my boots on. Uh, so I wasn't a big guy at all. And I was constantly being challenged in uh, face-offs with uh, potential suspects or perpetrators that thought they could take the little cop. And so I, I got into more scuffs. Uh, up front early before I learned this system called verbal judo and be able to talk yourself out of fights using words. Uh, and that became invaluable for me. But um, so the stress of the job, 
uh, the shift work. And I guess I'll, I'll get into that now. So our, I'm not a doctor, obviously. Um, but our bodies aren't knocked. We're not meant to be nocturnal. Uh, and we're, we're supposed to get eight hours of sleep every day in order for our body to, uh, to recharge, uh, systems reset, um, and our body to function perfectly. And in a, a first responder and a, in a military uh, career, you don't get that all the time. In fact, you rarely get that. Uh, when I worked midnight shifts, uh, whether it was uh, on a 12-hour rotation, 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., or if it was the, the nine-hour shift that I worked um, uh, 11.30 or 10.30 to uh, 7.30, right? Anyway, the midnight shift, graveyard shift, uh, you would you would work those hours and then inevitably you, you couldn't go home and go to sleep. You had court uh, from a case, you know, weeks ago or whatever, or um, you've got training that you've got to go to that uh, was always either on your off day during regular hours or uh, during your your sleeping hours. And or, or your next door neighbor decides it's it's the right day and the time to mow their lawn at 10 o'clock in the morning uh, right outside your window or uh, the kids in the neighborhood are playing in the street. And it's it, uh, it's it's difficult to be a day sleeper. Um, so I think that's got a, a lot to do with it. And then the equipment that we use, the, the weight that we carry on our body repetitively day in and day out for hours and hours and hours and hours that starts to break down, uh, you know, the, the small of your back, um, neck issues, uh, knees, uh, ankles. Um, and then when you retire after all of this, now there's no chase. There's, there's no excitement. There's, there's none of that adrenaline dump. There's, 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 nothing so to, to live for, so to speak. I mean, I, uh, I just lost two mentors of mine last week, uh, retired PD guys that uh, were retired. One of them was retired for about 10 years. Uh, the other one was retired for five. And the, the average, uh, from what I understand, of retired police officers enjoying their retirement is three to five years. That's that's crazy to think that you you spend 30 plus years on a job and then in your, quote, golden years, you get three to five of them. Yeah, but like I have a friend now. He's a um, homicide detective now and he's got, you know, he's got a young guy um, has, you know, a couple, you know, two, three year olds in the house. And, you know, he's married. And I asked him the same question. I said, oh, what is it? You know, why do a lot of, you know, first responders eat their gun after they're retired? And he said, well, first of all, we don't really have anybody to talk to. He says, because, you know, my wife is, you know, stay at home mom. Of course, they do more work than any of us will ever do. Yes. Um, but, you know, when he just comes home and she asks him how his day was, well, he just got back from a quadruple homicide. And three of them were children. And he's not going to tell his wife that. No. You know, so he's like, you know, and there is such thing, just like the military, you know, the police have the thin blue line, you know, military has a thin green line, 
you know, that we can always talk to a brother, but we won't ever talk to about to a civilian about everything we went through. And he says, you know, so at the end of the day, when these guys retire, you know, now all of this have they have all these memories and thoughts in their head, and all they have is the bottle, and now they have, you know, not not have a, a weapon next to them. And that's why a lot of them, they just can't take it. They can't take the memories and all that stuff. Do you agree with that uh, assessment? Absolutely. So um, about seven years ago, I, I tore my rotator cuff in an off-duty incident. Um, wasn't exciting. There was nothing, you know, cool or anything about it. I just uh, was helping my brother-in-law move furniture and uh, a, a couch caught my uh, sleeve of my shirt and pop, there went my shoulder. Um, so after, uh, after the shoulder surgery or, or while I was waiting on, on shoulder, my, my surgery and going through, uh, physical therapy beforehand, uh, the department that I worked for, uh, there was one person in that department that called to check on me in the entire time that I was out months that I was out and not not the leadership, not my direct supervisor, uh, nobody other than the guy that I worked on shift with called to check on me. And then um, once I got, quote, better, uh, my wife and I had a, a, a frank discussion about going back into law enforcement. And this was right when the Michael Brown thing happened. Um in the Midwest and shortly after the Trayvon Martin thing had, and it just, um, it was, policing has never been a, a, a safe job, but at that point it was no, it's just a straight up dangerous job. And she told me she didn't want me to go back to back into policing. So, um, as you, as you mentioned, my, my phone stopped ringing out of sight, out of mind. We have a very tight brotherhood, as long as you're in the forefront, it, you, you slip out to the side or you move on to a different job or, or what have you. Um, it's just, uh, I, I don't think we mean anything by it or, or, or purposely neglecting any of our brothers or sisters. It just, you're out of, you're out of the mind because they're still in the job. They're still focused on their, their partners on the street uh, or, you know, for the firemen, the, the guys on the rig with them uh, in the military, uh, the guys that are, they're serving with right then, right now, there's still that, uh, that, that family nucleus going on. And, and if you're out of it, you're out of it. Yeah. Okay, now let me ask you a question, because, um, you know, um, I, got, I got hurt on duty and uh, I lost my vision. And I'm 80% blind now, but you know, here I am. I go from being a tank commander, you know, of a you know hundred million dollar vehicle. You know, I can shoot shit from two miles away, and now I can't even see at night to go to the bathroom. So it was a kind of that was a big mind mind screw up for me. So what was it like, you know? Because you know, we're on when you're there's something about I don't care what uniform it is. I, I can I can put on a, a Burger King uniform. If you put on a uniform, you, you you walk a little taller. You know, you 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 feel a little bit more of that macho ness. So what was it like? You know, all of a sudden because I don't know what shoulder you had and operated on. You know, all of a sudden you're one day you're Billy Badass, 
and then the next day, you know, you're having problem problem wiping your own ass. It's it's still been a struggle. It's been seven years, and it's still it's still a struggle. I've I've been able to reconnect with a uh, a handful of people that I talk to on a on a weekly basis, uh, just to you know keep up with them. And um, but that was just in the last two years. So for five years, uh, I. I struggled because I, I was I was a, a patrol sergeant and a canine sergeant. And I had I had people that reported to me, and I went from being a frontline leader to not having anybody to follow me. I, I wasn't leading anybody anymore. I, I didn't have purpose mm-hmm. it, inside of me. This is what I was thinking. Now my wife has always been uh, very supportive of me and, and, and there for me emotionally when, when needed, but we're, we're all a types, right? We don't like to talk about our feelings. We don't like to tell people when we're not whole uh, mentally or, or emotionally, we, we have to power through it. It's what men do. We power through it. We suck it up, man up, put your pants back on, put left foot in front of right foot. And that's what you got to do one step at a time. And that's, that's what I did for five years. And um, I, I ended up going into some uh, some pretty dark places. Never, never super depressed, where I, where I was sitting in a chair with a bottle of Jack and 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 my Glock in my hand. But I went in some dark places where I missed everybody. What am I supposed to be doing with myself? Why am I even getting out of bed? There's nothing for me to do. There's nowhere for me to go. There's n- no one following behind me. I'm not leading anymore. And uh, I journal uh, because of this. I, I started journaling. I do. I just before we were, we we got on the call. I, I I have like four or five books that I read a chapter out of every day, and then I write my goals for today. And I you know, and I can actually go back to some of my journals from a few years ago. I'm like, damn, I was going through that at that yeah. time. Yeah, I've made, you know, or or I I've, I've made it through that. I'm not you know, and some of the stuff you we kind of. You know, we, we thought was mind, you know, earth shattering back then. We're like, oh, yeah, I remember going through that. It's not as important as we actually thought it was. Because, you know, a lot of times, like you say, you can't see the forest through the trees, you know. That's right. So, so now you you they, you medically you have to retire, obviously, correct? Uh, yes. Um, I, I probably could have worked a little harder to get to get back into it. Uh, but. Again, the the conversation that my wife and I had, it it just uh, wasn't in the cards anymore. So I just sort of accepted uh, that end of um, my life was done. I mean, I'm, and that that was really the hardest part. Uh, I was I was good at it, you know. I mean, I, I didn't have a stellar standout career. I didn't chase down uh, an infamous bad guy and 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 put cuffs on him. I just I went to work every day. Uh, I did my job. I answered my calls. Uh, when I found bad guys, I put them in jail. Um, but I, you know, I didn't have like a standout, and no, no one would make a movie out of my career. However, I was really good at what I did, and especially when I was in in canine, I didn't have a a man eating dog partner. I had a a, a narcotics sniffing dog, and she was a a forty three pound chocolate lab. Uh, but 10 months after we 
went through canine school and became a certified team, I won an international competition. I won top dog. Uh, it wasn't me. It was my dog. She was amazing. And, and we were a great team together. And we, we found a lot of dope. We put a lot of bad guys behind bars. We found, you know, stolen property as, as a result of, you know, the dope finds. And I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I was really good at it. And, and to walk away from that, I mean, that was canine is what I went into law enforcement to do. Cause when I was, when I was in the air force, my, my barracks or my dorm room was just down the road from where the canine teams for the LEs were training. And when I wasn't at work, I'd go park on the other side of the fence and I'd watch them work the dogs. Um, and, and I said, I, I, I want to do that. So when I got into police work, that's ultimately what I wanted to do. And it took me 12 years to get it. Um, and I got to spend three years in it, but then I had to walk away from it. And that was really, really difficult. Okay. Now the question I have, you know, because, you know, well, after I ask this question, then we're going to talk about business a little bit. Okay. Um, you know, a lot of guys, when they get out, you know, um, they miss that. Like me, I missed being on my tank. I miss shooting rounds down range. You know, I missed having a 50 cal where I can blow 300, 400 rounds. You know, the, the adrenaline, like you said, the, the, the adrenaline rush. And uh, now all of a sudden I got out and, you know, my best man, he's like, oh, I want to go shoot my nine millimeter or my, you know, 357. I'm like, you know, that's cute. You know, but it's like, <laughs> I had, you know, I shot. <laughs> One of 120 millimeter, you know, and I shot a 50 cal. So it, that nine millimeter does nothing for me anymore. But what was it when you had you no way to release that adrenaline anymore? Oh God, um, I I had I honestly had nowhere to to turn. I did, I, I didn't have any hobbies. Uh, I tried woodworking. Uh, my my father was was an amazing amateur woodworker. There wasn't anything that he couldn't make, build, design in his wood shop. And, and I wish I would have paid more attention as a kid uh, and, and picked up on those things. Um, but I, I didn't have a hobby. I wasn't good at sports. So um, out, outside of college football on weekends in the fall, I really had, I had nothing. Uh, and that was, that was difficult, a, a difficult pill to swallow. Um, if, you say, I, if you say the Crimson Tide, we're just going to end this conversation right now. Hey, it's been a great conversation. I appreciate <laughs> the opportunity. Uh, yeah, I, I am. I am a huge, huge Alabama. Well, fan. See, I'm not a big Saban guy because of what he did with the Miami Dolphins and just quit in the middle of the season. But, but uh, you guys, um, for some reason, you guys are kicking ass and there's something I, and I think a lot of it is they have a certain expectation, you know, they expect to win national titles that, you know, they don't go in to say, you know, we, we might have a decent season. It's them, you know, co coaches like them, coaches like, you know, the Ohio state, though, the, you know, those coaches, they, they're, they're, they're there to win every year. And I think there's a big difference, you know, I think that's one great thing about, you know, college football is, you know, there's certain coaches like Dave Boswini from, you know, they know that I'm there to win. Yeah. And, you know, it's not, yeah. oh, we might go, you know, we might make it to the uh, bowl. No, we want to go to the bowl. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, uh, in the, 
in the nineties, uh, actually from, from the last, from the 1993 national championship, uh, where we beat the Miami hurricanes. Um, Oh, that's why I hate you. Cause all, that's all, <laughs> all the way through 2007, we sucked. I mean, we, we were doing good to have, uh, just slightly better than a 50, 50 season. I mean, we, uh, we just, we were not good and it took, uh, that amount of time to get the right coach back and to turn everything around. So, uh, Saban came to, uh, Alabama, I think it was 2007. And the slogan was, this is the year 2000 and Saban. Um, we didn't win a national championship that year, but we finally got back on the map and on, yeah. on the, on the road to a championship. So now um, we'll talk about business because, you know, and then we'll talk about your podcast, which I think it's, it's going to be fun. Um, you know, a lot of people get out of the military or law enforcement, you know, they retire and they, they, they want to start a business. Yeah. So they're going to open up a t-shirt company, a hat company, liquor or coffee. And, you know, six months later, they're, they realize they're $10,000 in debt and don't know what the hell just happened. And I think a lot of it, like for me, and my my wife listens to every podcast that I do, by the way, Um, she's my editor. Um, My wife has a a ninth or tenth sense where she'll she'll know if something is off. And a lot of guys, I mean, because I can only, you know, talk about guys, they don't sit down and have that hard conversation, um, you know, with their wives, you know, look at them, I want to start a company and. And they don't have, you know, they, they don't have that conversation ac- across the kitchen table until shit goes sideways. And then they got to have an e- even harder conversation across the kitchen table. So talk to us about that and what that conversation was like when you wanted to, you know, start one of your three businesses and you have, you know, you have a wife, you know, you have children to d- take care of. So what was that conversation like? Um sometimes difficult, you know, cause what, what we want, it's, we, we've worked it out in our head. This is going to be great. Like I talked to two people and they said, yeah, they'd pay for that. And then you, you get a, a stark reality check of somebody saying that's dumb, you know, um, or that that'll never work. So my very first business was in 2007. I was a burglary detective and uh, my Lieutenant, came to me and said, Hey, you were, um, you were in the air force, right? I mean, you worked on electronics. I said, yeah. He said that, that last case that you turned in the video from that, uh, gas station was awful. Like you, you can't, you can't see anything. Why, why did you even turn that into evidence? And I, and I said, well, because it was evidence, you know, as all they had. So that's, I was, I was turning in. He said, have you ever thought about, starting a video surveillance company. I mean, you could, you could literally go and help these small business owners with affordable CCTV stuff that, you know, is better than what they could get at Walmart or uh, at the time Best Buy and, or Circuit City. And I said, no, never thought about it. He said, I'll help you do it. I said, okay. So my very first business was born. It was called Discrete Solutions. And um, this lieutenant helped me get my first couple of uh, customers. But 
if you remember, 2007 was the beginning of the crash and not a great year to start a novelty uh, business where uh, an expensive one <clears throat> when people were, were losing money and not willing to spend on uh, something like like severe, uh, surveillance cameras. Uh, businesses were going out of business and such. So um, I, I started it in 2007. Uh, I left the police department about six months later to do that full time. And then was 11 months after that was forced back into law enforcement uh, for a regular paycheck because that that business was was going under. Um, and fast forward a, a couple of years later or several years later, after I tore my rotator cuff, I, I, I mentioned I, I tried woodworking. So I, I made a couple of things and some people are like, hey, I, can can I buy one of those for a Christmas present? And I said, sure. So I made a couple more and then made a couple more. And then um, I tried turning a hobby into a business and there just wasn't enough business in, in woodworking. And I wasn't skilled enough, certainly not like uh, like Kurt um, Balish, right? Balish Woodworks. Love yes. Yeah. Love a little plug. Little plug for Kurt. Um, not nowhere near as talented as as, as my father was, so I, I wasn't able to turn that around. So that's the second uh, failed business uh, attempt. Um, and there were there were a couple others um, where I tried, and some of them I got blessings from my wife, and she's like, "Yeah, that might work." So we tried it, and it didn't work. Thankfully. All of them were self-funded. I never borrowed a dime to start them. So I never went in debt because of them. I just wasn't able to survive a, a revenue cycle to keep them going and make it a career. And until uh, here recently with um, the Faulkner Endeavor Group and uh, my ebook series. Robert Garcia. Yes. Yes, yeah, thanks. Thanks to Rob, big, for sure. Big, big plug. Um, without him, my book would not come out. Actually, I just did a uh, – because I, I often forget I even have a book out there. It's been two years now. So I just did a post today about it and about you know suicide rates for, for adolescents. But, you know, now let's talk about podcasting because this is, this is the fun part. I told you guys we were talking about some fun stuff. Um, you know, a lot of times, you know, I'll get together with my old, you know, squad mates or whatever – and we'll sit around the fire pit and just joke about some of the stupid shit that we did. You know, like I can just say, you know, if, if I'm in a group of veterans or first responders, I could say piss bottle. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. Yep. But you do it in the civilian world. They're like, well, what is that? You're like, <laughs> never, never mind. We don't have to talk about that. So, you know, talk to us about, you know, some of the fun stuff. Cause you know, there's like, like there's the dark side of you know policing and then there's some the, the funny shit that that goes on and i think that your podcast is going to be a great mix of both because you're going to be able to talk about you know the dark side and but also the fun side of being a police officer and some of the stuff you saw so tell us some of the stories that we know that's going to be on the first couple episodes yeah so um thanks for the opportunity to to plug it it's, it's called the knock and talk show and um uh, when another shout out to, to Rob, when, when I was c 
coming up with the name and trying to establish the brand, uh, Rob said, you need to pick something that's synonymous with law enforcement, something that, that first responders in general and uh, a majority of veterans might know. Uh, so I, I, I had a think tank with a couple of PD buddies of mine, and, and we came up with uh, the Knock and Talk show. And, um, you know, the, it had a couple of reasons behind it. We're going to be sitting around and, and talking and we're going to be knocking about um, uh, the stories and knocking on each other. And uh, so there, there was sort of a dual meaning behind it. But, uh, yeah, so the, the, the whole premise behind the podcast is to allow Law enforcement, first responders, firemen, EMS guys, e even uh, military veterans, to be able to to have the uh, the vehicle to share the funny stories. So we 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 forget sometimes that there is fun at work, especially in the environment that our first responders are having to survive. And I, I don't want to say go to work in; I want to say survive in. Uh, because it's dark times right now for them. And that was, that's what I wanted to do was to uh, provide the, the conduit for funny stories to surface and remind us that we can laugh at work and because of work. Um, and it's important because laughter is one of the best medicines out there. You know, what's the, what's the uh, comparison it takes just one muscle to smile, but it takes, you know, uh, several muscles to frown. And, and most of the time, uh, our, our LEOs and first responders have, um, is it RBF resting bitch face? Cause yeah. we're, you know, we're, we're so enamored with, uh, hatred and, and the, the, the worst people, uh, at their worst times doing, doing the worst things possible. And um, every once in a while you get, you, you, you get the opportunity to, to laugh at work. And, and these are the stories that uh, we tell each other, as you said, around the fire pit or belly up at a bar or at a barbecue or e even post shift. Uh, once you've turned all your paperwork in and before you go home, um, you're sitting around outside the the precinct or, or the squad room and, and, uh, and sharing those funny stories. So that's, that's the premise behind the knock and talk show. Um, now, funny story. I don't want to give away too many of my stories. Um, Cause then I, I want them to be new for, for the show, but um, I can tell you that it wasn't, it wasn't, <laughs> it, it wasn't um, that, uh, Often, I mean, no, it was often. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't. Oh gosh, what's the word I'm trying to use here? Um, quite often, when when let's say we you know came up to uh, a large crowd in a park after dark, and then you know the park's closed, whatever, and um, we're just talking to people and and um, end up doing uh, pat downs, and you find a a wad of something in somebody's pocket and you, you, you have a pretty good idea of, uh, of what that's going to be. So you ask them, you know, Hey, what's, what's this? Oh, I don't know. And uh, you ask, Hey, do I have your permission to, to pull it out of your pocket and take a look at it? 
see what it is. And of course, normally they say, yeah, sure. That's fine. So you pull out this giant bag of weed or crack or uh, something that they're not supposed to have. And, Oh, what's this? I don't know, man. These aren't my pants. These are my cousin's pants. (laughs) What what are you doing wearing your cousin's pants? You know, the best one uh, was after a foot chase. Um, Finally catch, catch him and, um, get him in cuffs and got him set down on the curb, uh, waiting for the transport vehicle to come get him and, and doing the, the pat down incident to arrest, um, slide his shoes off. And, uh, there was a, a giant sandwich bag of, of weed in the toe of these, of his shoes. I don't know how he was wearing these shoes or how his foot fit in there. I mean, his toes, had to have been crumped up underneath his foot. But I said, dude, how are you even wearing these shoes? Well, I didn't know that was in there. These, these are my brother's shoes. Like, really? Dude, you, you didn't know the sandwich bag of dope was it was in the shoe? So now I have a friend now. He's he's a uh, he retired now, so now he can actually tell the story. And I'll and I'll try to have him, you know, get him on your show. But he was he was a retired state trooper. And he he there was um he pulled over a, a, a car full of females, girls back back then, and um, all of a sudden, you know, they're like, "Wait a minute, you know, if, if I flash him, maybe he'll get me off." <laughs> so he did that, and you know, she did. They all did that to him, and she still got. He still he wrote up a ticket, and the girl got an attitude, and she's like, uh, you know, "We flashed you." He's like, "It's okay, I'm gay, so it's okay." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so yeah. people that, you know, like I know, like if I get pulled over, you know, because now with cams and all that crap, you know, that if a cop has to put on the on the, you know, on the camera, pretty much you're going to get you're going to get a ticket, you know. But like a lot of times, like I got pulled over and, um, and, and this was like right before I got hurt, you know, and the police officer pulled me over. He said, you know why you're speeding? I said, yeah, you know, I was on my phone. It was my first time in New Jersey driving. And I'm like, you know, I'm wrong, officer. I said, you know, I didn't realize that it was illegal. He's like, you know, it's illegal. I'm like, no, now I do. And, you know, and, and, and um, he said, who are you talking to? I said, well, you know, I'm making an appointment with the VA, you know, for PTSD. He's like, all right, go ahead, go, go. You know, <laughs> he let me go. But, you know, if I would have been that asshole, that would have been like, because I got it. Like I said, I have a friend. He just retired. His name is Joe. And he's like, if I pull somebody over. And if they're nice, you know, even if I have to give them a ticket, I'm going to give them the least ticket that I could, you know, I can give them. Right. He said, if I pull somebody over and they're a total asshole, I'm going over that whole car. I'm going to write as many tickets as you'd I can. Be, they're going to have yeah. a bad. You'd so be amazed about- how many people talk themselves into additional tickets just just by, you know, their attitude. Um, you know, you, I always wrote um warning citations for most of the speeding infractions um you know you got a car speeding so you pull them over so every all the other motoring public sees the car being the speeding car getting pulled over so now they're going to slow down right and uh you inform the driver that they committed an infraction they were speeding and then you bring them back a warning so it's a piece of paper that they get to take with them, but it turns into a positive interaction with law enforcement because it's not, you know, it's not a, a ticket they have to pay for 
Um, and it's a reminder, hey, you know, you you were speeding. We are out here. We do make traffic stops. So, you know, you need to you need to slow down. And again, all the other motoring public going by are like, oh, they're out riding tickets today. So they all slow down. So it's it's a win, win, win. I get a stat. Uh, I get to turn in a piece of paper. Uh, it shows I was proactive and um, the citizen gets a positive interaction because they got a break. Um and then, you know, again, the, the rest of the public sees that um, that the police are out. So it's sort of a win, win, win. Um, and I had a I had a sergeant one time, you know, tell me that I shouldn't waste my time writing warning citations. But we had a difference of opinion in, in how that was supposed to um, how we were supposed to do community policing. Now, I will tell you this funny story. Uh, I did stop somebody for speeding and they were really speeding. I mean, it was somewhere in the seventies and a 45. I mean, they were hauling. And uh, when I got up to the car, I asked them, you know, do you know why I've stopped you today? And he said, yes, I was speeding, but there's a reason. And I said, okay, well, you know, what's, what's, what's the reason. And he said, I have the worst case of the runs and I'm about to explode and I need to go right now. And I, I had heard this excuse probably in my lifetime a, a dozen times. So, you know, I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. I'll be right back. And uh, I can't actually had it. I wrote him a ticket because was, he was going pretty fast. And as I was giving him his copy, he exploded and it went every, I heard it. I could see it going, you know, out because he was wearing shorts down his leg into the floorboard of the car. And I took his copy away from him and I said, I um, have have a good day. And <laughs> that poor guy had to drive the rest of where he was going with uh, with soiled pants in his car and having to having to smell and sit and slide in that. So now, if anybody, bad for him. <laughs> if anybody ever gave you that excuse again, did it actually, did you think about that? I, I did. Yeah. So I started to look for the signs. This guy actually had, you know, signs of nervousness. He was sweating. Um, he was fidgeting in the car. So I, I thought there was a little bit more going on. Like maybe he was um, uh, got something, you know, he's got dope in the car, some stolen property in the car. He just, committed a crime. You know, I was, I was going to try to take the traffic stop further than just the traffic stop um, because of the signs he was, he was showing, but it was, it was because he was about to explode. <laughs> now, it's funny because I have a, a I have a, a, somebody that's pretty close to me and, and they're a doctor and um, they got pulled over and they told the, the doc, you know, they told the police officer, well, I'm a doctor. And he looked at her and said, well, I guess good. Cause you could, afford to pay for the ticket. (laughs) So talk to us, you know, last couple of questions that I have. Um, How do we find you? How do we find the podcast? How do we get your ebook? Because your ebook was amazing, especially about, you know, especially if you're looking to, you know, get into business. It's a great um, standard operating procedures of how not to screw up. So talk to us a little bit about your ebook and then about the podcast. So the the um, the ebook, uh, as I mentioned, I've started several businesses. A couple of them were more successful than than others, 
And I, I had um, a number of friends and colleagues ask me over the years, you know, how do I start a business? How, how do I get started? What's, you know, what, what am I supposed to do? And um, I, I had been asked that a, a enough times that I started making notes and I put it out on like an Excel spreadsheet of, you know, step one, step two, step three, really simple and elementary. And um, somebody said, you know, you, you should, you should write a book about this or, or at least make this look nicer. And uh, the fast forward to, to joining Rob Garcia's the warrior strategist uh, group design your own paycheck. And uh, we walk through it together and he's like, you have, you have a book here. You have an ebook. Let's, let's, let's get you to write it. So, so that's how the, the book got started. It, it's, it's a step-by-step -step guide, sort of like a start, start your own business for dummies. Now it's, it's not there to teach you how to 10 X your revenue. I'm not a business guru. I'm not a business strategist. This is literally how to take your cocktail napkin doodle of your business idea and legally form it into uh, whether you're doing a partnership or a sole proprietorship or an LLC, um, you know, how to, how to go through the secretary of state and, and get it registered, how, how to get your EIN through uh, the, the IRS and, and what, what are the next steps after that? And after that, and after that. So to get a copy of the book um, you can go to, um, the FE group, that's uh, Foxtrot Echo Group .io, India Oscar. And that's, uh, that's my company's website, the Faulkner Endeavor Group. And there is a link to um, a landing page there for uh, the book. Now there's the, uh, the book itself. And with every purchase of the book, you get uh, sort of a, a free bonus uh, guide with some some extra steps. And then there is, of course, the upgrade to, to the VIP edition, which uh, gives you quite a number of insider info of after you've started your business, how to be a good business owner. Um, and, and, and that's called Pull the Trigger? Yep, that's right. The name of the book is called uh, Pull the Trigger. And uh, today is the day that, uh, that you uh, get started and go pull that trigger. Okay, so now talk about the podcast. How do we find the podcast, and where is it available? Uh, the podcast is uh, if you if you go to the Facebook page, um, Facebook slash Knock and Talk. Um, there is uh, a link to the uh, the video on YouTube. I'm still working. We've had one episode. It was a great episode. Joe Massey from the uh, the LAPD uh, was on. He was a Navy veteran. And uh, that, that was a good conversation. I enjoyed uh, hanging out with, with Joe for about an hour. Um, future uh, shows will also be on the, uh, the YouTube channel, which is the Knock and Talk channel on YouTube. Uh, there's a link from the, uh, from the Facebook page. Also, you can go to knockandtalk.com, uh, which is the, uh, the website. And uh, we are working on getting the the podcast on uh, like the other RSS um, channels like uh, you know iTunes and uh, and Apple and and uh, wherever else you listen to your podcasts.
And you know, I'm I'm here to support you 100% all the time. I appreciate that. This yep. is, uh, this has been fun. So last question I have, um, I live in New Jersey and, um, because of our wonderful governor, um, I think things are starting to go back to lockdown again. Um, a lot of parents have lost their jobs. Um, and you know, some of them are driving for Uber, DoorDash, you know, so, you know, we live in a crazy world. So the average person is bombarded, you know, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. So if I ask them to do something in seven days, they're never going to get to it. But if I ask somebody to take an actionable step in the next 24 hours, they're like more likely. So if somebody's listening to this right now and they're struggling with their business, you can, this could be a two part question. Um, if they're struggling with their business and if somebody is listening to struggling with their mental health, what is something they can do in the next 24 hours to get help, what can they do? Uh, 24 hours with their business. Um, my, my quick answer would be to, uh, to reach out to the local SBA business center. Um, there is a lot of help. There's a lot of free training that the SBA offers to uh, small, small businesses, small business owners. And once you've taken one of those courses with the SBA, you become an SBA alumnus and you get access to uh, to other uh, trainings and courses and uh, assistance with with your business. And they do they do everything from helping you write a business plan to uh, doing a SWOT analysis, um, even help you try to find some funding. Um, if you're uh, you know in the tech industry, most of the grants these days are going to to tech uh, industries, but um, I, I would say reach out to the uh, the local SBA. And in my uh, in my ebook, I have several links to to different SBA programs and uh, course training courses that you can take, or you can just go to the SBA uh, website. Type in SBA or Small Business Administration in your uh, favorite. Uh, search engine and, uh, and, and start there. Now for, for mental health, uh, in the next 24 hours, if, if you're struggling and you need, uh, you need to get a monkey off your back, uh, you need to get some, something off your chest. Um, if you're in a really dark place, I would start with, uh, pick up the phone and just call somebody, um, get a conversation started, get, Get out of the dark, turn a light on. And um, the, the best place to start would, would be with uh, somebody that loves you uh, or somebody that you love. And if, it, if that's not an option, of course, the, the um, suicide helpline um, or, you know, if, if, if you really need it, uh, you can find me. My telephone number is uh, on the website. And, um, I may not know all the answers, but God gave me big ears, so I sure can listen if you need it. I love it, brother. So, guys, if you're listening to this, you definitely need to check out the podcast. Check out the ebook; it's very easy to read, even for a low tech redneck like myself. <laughs> I, I, I I absorbed it in one sitting, and I think it was truly amazing. Guys, if you're listening to this, make sure that you leave a comment, leave a review, because we're also if you leave a comment or a review, we will shout you out. 
on our next podcast episode. Brother, thank you so much for hopping on. I truly appreciate you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is going to go out next season, so it's going to be a while. But it, when it goes out, it goes out to 10 different platforms. And if there's anything I can ever do to help get that show up and running, I'm all about it. And, you know, it's I, I, I'm going to treat you like family, like a brother. So you never have to worry about there being anything, you know, me asking for anything. It's always give, 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 you know. I appreciate uh, that and uh, vice versa as well. Uh, you ever need anything, um, you just let me know. All right, brother. God bless and have an amazing week. Yeah, be safe. You too. <laughs> Bye. Hey, guys. If you're enjoying our show, if you love what we're doing, if you would like to support us, we have a whole bunch of great stuff coming out. We have a brand new T-shirt line that's coming out hats, coffee mugs, any kind of swag that lets your friends know that you support Vertical Momentum and you're always looking to get better. Also, we have our new coffee brand coming out. It's called Vertical Momentum Coffee. It's ass-kicking coffee, and, and it, will, it will get you moving in the morning. So, guys, if you're interested, go to www dot richard dot net check us out leave us a note tell us what you'd like and we'll actually send it to you the new website is being built so if you guys want to our book is out there on amazon it's called a hero's journey from darkness to light definitely check it out it talks about my story but it also talks about how to survive depression how to survive addiction All right, guys, I love you. Thank you so much for always supporting our mission, which is to save lives. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.